Sardar Patel was, a, was one of the greatest administrators of India. When I was invited to deliver this year's lecture in his memory, I thought it appropriate to select a subject which presents one of the greatest administrative challenges of our time, namely planning, development and management of our cities. Sadat Patel was also associated on two occasions, 1917 to 1922 and 1924 with the administration and development of the city of Ahmedabad. He made a notable contribution in improving the city in accordance with his view that the test of municipal improvement is how it works in the poor localities. In dealing with the municipal affairs, Sadar Patel displayed the same commitment and iron will that he was to show later at the national stage in regard to the integration of states and reorganization of civil services. His capacity to get even impossible done has made him one of the greatest builders of modern India. We should draw inspiration this from him for redesigning and reconstructing our cities. For a variety of reasons, the subject of cities has assumed great importance. There is an urgent need to look beneath the surface and review the policies and program currently in vogue. The 20th century has been called the age of urbanization. In 1900, about 8% of the world population lived in urban areas. By 2000, this percentage will rise to 50, and about 3 billion people will be living in the cities of the world. India is no exception to this process of urbanization. Though our rate of urbanization is comparatively low, the size of our urban population is very large. According to 1981 census, it is 156 million, fourth largest urban population amongst the countries of the world. In number, only three countries have more urban population than India. These are USA, USSR, and China. <clears throat> By 1985, India will outpace both USSR and USA and will have the second largest urban population in the world, next only to China. During the last decade, 1971 to 1981, in particular, the urban population registered the largest increase, 66 percent. In absolute terms, this, this decadal growth almost equal the addition to urban population during 60 years, 1901 to 1961. By 2000, India will have 350 to 400 million people living in its urban areas. There will be 20 cities 
with more than a million population each and 600 cities with population ranging from 50,000 to 500,000. Four of our cities, Calcutta, Bombay, Delhi and Madras will be amongst the 30 largest cities of the world, each with a population of more than 10 million. The metropolitan centers play a significant role in generating income and production. The GNP of any large Indian city region is as great as national GNP of countries like Sri Lanka or Nepal. Undoubtedly, the rural development is necessary for our progress, but it is no substitute for solving the urban problems. On the other hand, rural prosperity depends upon what happens to our cities, how well we organize and manage them. The city affords the opportunity for those who come as well as those who are left behind. The dramatic increase in the size of metropolitan cities has not reduced the pressure of population or poverty in the rural areas. We are facing problems not only of teeming cities, but also of teeming countryside. During the last 30 years, our rural population increased by 74%, while during the same period, rural areas lost 5,000 square kilometers of land to expanding cities. The per capita availability of arable land has declined from 0.46 hectares in 1951 to 0.30 hectares in 1981. More than 20% of the rural population is landless. Millions of poor, both in the cities and the villages, are groaning under the special tyranny. This is especially true in the case of metropolitan towns. The metropolitan cities, with a population of more than one million, particularly face acute congestion. The average space, 0.15 hectare, occupied by one inhabitant, is 1 40th of the average national space available to an individual, 0.6 hectares. The problem confronting our cities are similar to the problems which are being faced by other developing countries. What we do in India to solve the problems is of special interest to those, to them. Any, any innovation provided by us will bring us closer to the developing countries, most of whom are non-aligned. The developing countries, by the turn of the century, will together hold about 75% of the world population. The world peace, to a large extent, depend upon what happens to the cities of the developing countries. This is For the story the of these cities is also the story of exploitation of one part of the world by the other. Unless the nature of the underlying forces that operate, both at the national and international level, is clearly understood and new relationship built, the tragic element in the horizon of our cities 
will continue to loom large. Our cities have slums, primarily because the power to clear or prevent them has been taken away from us. The cities of the third world form part of the world economy, but the population do not share the resources of the world. By itself, the study of the city is of fundamental importance. Its all-pervasive character was aptly brought out by Spengler when he observed in the decline of the West, world history is the history of civic man, peoples, states, politics, all arts and all sciences rest upon one prime phenomena of human being, the town. The city is the most imposing creation of the man. It is the cradle of human civilization. It has many facets. As an economic entity, it is a seat of business and industry. As a social organization, it is a creator of community and collective action. As a political unit, it is a center of power in government. And as a cultural force, it is a repository of old traditions, a fountainhead of new ideas, an instrument of intellectual advancement, and a molder of attitude and thoughts. This is All India Radio Urban planning, recording. urban ideology, urban patterns, urban administration, urban linkages, and urban resources are all issues of fundamental importance not only for the individual countries, but also for the international community. The issue really involves the vision of the future. For deeper understanding, it is necessary to take a long-running start in history and to view the city in historical perspective. Cities are emblems of the settled life that began with permanent agriculture a life created with the aid of permanent shelters and utilities. The role of the city in shaping human civilization has been a mixed one. On the one hand, the city has been freed from the conservatism of the village and enriched man's life by imparting urbanity, civility, and diversity to it. On the other hand, the city has bred poverty and dehumanized and depersonalized citizens and engulfed them in traffic snarls and crime waves. As Alex de Tocqueville described Manchester in the 19th century, in the city, humanity attains its most complete development and its most brutish. Here, civilization works its miracles, and civilized man is turned back almost into a savage. In the West, the industrial and techno technological revolution has been accompanied by equally significant urban revolution. Millions of migrants have moved from rural areas to urban centers, and towns have this grown into cities, radio, uh, cities into metropolises, and metropolises into megalopolises. In USA, for instance, two-thirds of its total population is in concentrated in about 10% of the total land area. 
and 90% of the city population into 1% of the nation's territory. With the increase of congestion in the heart of the cities, the affluent classes have started moving out and strip cities and conurbation have come into being. A telling example of this conurbation is the Washington, New York, Boston Strip extending for about 400 miles, almost entirely built up. 13 such strip cities now contain half the population of the U.S. The growth of such large settlements has resulted in what has been termed as socially retarded civilization. It has made life more mechanical and artificial. It has been significantly remarked that the modern Western citizen stops when it is red, goes when it is green, sees what he is supposed to see, thinks what he is supposed to think, his personal contribution, like income tax, are deductible at source. The Western city, according to Rene Dubais, has become a symbol of the fact that the man can become adapted to starless skies, treeless avenues, shapeless building, tasteless bread, joyless celebrations. Of late, however, there has been a great awareness in the West for the need for ensuring healthy environment. This Public movements have started on a large scale. Governments have taken effective measures to clean the air and the waterways and eliminate noise. It has been made compulsory for the industries to adopt anti-pollution devices. The new technological revolution in telecommunication and computerization is making it possible for the manager or businessman or even public and private enterprises to function from residences or small offices or small settlements. The need to travel long distances in the city is getting gradually diminished. Life is becoming more agreeable. <coughs> Whereas the western cities have been an instrument of economic advance in the country, the cities in what are now known as developing countries had mainly served as a basis for exploitation by the colonial rule, and their growth was not accompanied by industrialization. It was through the cities like Bombay, Calcutta, and Madras that the raw material was taken and manufactured goods brought in, thereby denuding the countryside and impoverishing the people. Now these cities are being overwhelmed by the problems of poverty and over-urbanization. The city of the developing world faces today one of the most awesome tests in our history. Whereas growth of cities in West took place over a sufficiently long period of time, the cities of the developing world are rapidly, are expanding rapidly, and that too against the background of larger population growth, lower income, and fewer opportunity for migration abroad. The life here is perhaps better than in the village, yet it is very oppressive. Our, and we are impelled to ask, did we come here to laugh or cry? Are we dying or being born?
since independence, considerable progress has been made in regard to planning and development of our cities. For about 600 cities, we have now well formulated master plans. There are 60 statutory development authorities functioning in various cities and regions. From 1972 to 1980, 7 million people have benefited from the slum improvement schemes alone. Another 10 million slum dwellers are likely to benefit during the six five-year plan period. A public sector undertaking, the Housing and Urban Development Corporation, has been set up and has helped in the construction of 1.4 million houses. To ensure equitable distribution of urban land, the Urban Land Sealing and Regulation Act 1976 has been enforced. In Delhi, a dramatic improvement in the cityscape has taken place recently. It won applause from thousands of visitors during the Asiad Nam and Chogam. It has enhanced India's prestige abroad and given new self-confidence to the nation. Delhi also saw successful implementation of a historic scheme of resettlement in which about a million squatters were resettled in planned colonies with basic environmental and community facilities. This is all India Under this scheme, which has rightly been termed as one of the biggest socialist scheme undertaking in any developing country, about 3,000 hectares of land, the market value of which exceeded rupees 2,000 crores, was allotted to the lowest sections of the urban poor. New measures of public health and family planning have been introduced on a large scale. The life expectancy has increased from 30 to 54 years in urban areas, and the city's birth rate is now 27.8 per thousand as against the All India average of 33 per thousand. Notwithstanding the significant achievements, the general picture of our cities is one of concern. In every aspect of city life, Density of population, availability of land, housing, slums and squatter settlements, municipal services, the scale and character of migration, employment, transport, civic sense, and general environment, the current conditions are far from satisfactory. There has been a simultaneous growth of population in our cities and our rural settlements. India populations of 650 million is spread over 329 million hectares and is concentrated in 5,75,936 rural settlements and 3,245 urban settlements. It is one of the most densely populated countries in the world. It accounts for about 15% of the world population in a land area constituting only 2.4% of the world's total. This is all India Radio As such, the per capita availability of land in the country comes to 0 0.43 hectares in 1981 as compared to 4.14 hectares in USA, 8.43 hectares in USSR, 1.9 hectares in Burma, and 0 0.9 hectares 
in China and Pakistan. Under the impact of growing population, per capita availability of land in India has progressively declined over the past decade. In 1981, it was nearly half of the per capita figure for 1951. The overall density of population has gone up from 77 persons per kilometers in 1901 to 221 persons per kilometers in 1981. Quite a sizable portion of the urban population lives in 12 major cities. In these cities, 27% of the urban population is concentrated. They have the highest gross density, 85% per hectare, as compared to 43% per hectare for the cities with a population ranging from 1 to 5 lakhs, 32% per hectare for cities with population ranging from 50,000 to 1 lakh, 21% per hectare for cities with population ranging from 20,000 to 50,000 and 1% per hectare for cities with a population of less than 20,000. An analysis of the urbanization process during the period 1901 to 1981 shows that while the total urban population between this period increased sixfold, the number of cities increased by only 80%, thereby indicating that most of the urban growth has taken place by enlargement of the existing cities. There is an acute scarcity of developed land in all the metropolitan cities. To meet the requirement of population that would be added to our cities during the period 1981 to 2001, over 2 million acres of urban land would be required. In our cities, the land speculation lobby is extremely powerful. An analysis of data for 19 years, 1963 to 1982, in Delhi reveals that the residential colonies, the land prices increased from rupees 15 to rupees 75 to rupees 2000 to rupees 4000 per square meter. That is 40 to 60 times. According to another survey, the price of undeveloped land within the municipal limits of Calcutta increased by 900% during the period 1950 to 1965. In the outskirts, they increased by still higher margin, 1300%. There are pronounced disparities in urban incomes. 40% of the urban household get only 16% of the total urban income. 30 to 45% of the household live on income of rupees 300 per month or less. In the sphere of housing, there are acute shortages. Of the total housing shortage of 23.5 million dwelling units in 1981, 18.3 million was estimated to be in the rural areas and 5.2 million this in urban areas. About 44% of the families in the urban areas live in one room only. This percentage increases to 67 in the four largest cities and reaches the fantastic figure of 70 in Calcutta. 
excluding, of course, thousands who live on the pavements. We have the highest congestion rate in the world. 16 to 19 percent of Indian families live in less than 10 square meters of space. In Kanpur, a recent survey shows that 58 percent of the household has only one room and another 26 percent has only two rooms. Three quarters of the houses have no windows and 80 percent have no latrines. In heavy rains, 66% of the household become waterlogged. Poverty of resources and low levels of income are major handicaps. A World Bank study of five typical cities of developing countries, Madras, Ahmedabad, Nairobi, Mexico City, and Bogota, reveals that it is only the richest 30 to 50 percent of the urban population who can afford to live in the cheapest tenements built by public authorities. And this calculation is based upon the optimistic assumption that poor people can afford to earmark 15 percent of their income for housing. Actually, 75 percent of the income of such people is spent on food and 19 to 23 percent on other basic necessities like this clothing and medical care. Only 6 to 10 percent is left for housing. Thus, even a small percentage than what has been worked out by the World Bank can afford to buy the cheapest tenement for low-income groups. The recent surveys of public housing projects in northern India also indicates that out of every 10 houses built for the poor, 7 to 9 are actually being used by the better class of the people.